politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to our daily town hall here at Conservative Review Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for a brand new and exciting week. Each week, I think we're really upping the ante with our content, our facts, details, data. As I posted today in my big column to kick off the week, six big lies you need to know about coronavirus And uh, this is all about data. It's about data and information and getting the right information. We are in an information war to convince the hearts and minds of our fellow citizens. We convince their hearts and minds. We'll be able to roll this back. If not, well, I don't want to think about that because this is pretty bad. Um, Today, we're going to have a very special show with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Um, He is the man behind all the serology tests for Stanford University. We're going to talk a lot about the science of antibodies and the spreading of the disease and lockdowns. Um, Later on in the week, we will talk more about the activism part of this, the political part of this. So I do want to just say a couple words on the political side before we bring on Dr. Bhattacharya and talk about the science. Um, You know, this really hit me personally yesterday so we had lockdown larry had a brilliant political move to take the pressure off himself here in maryland and he went on to say look you know okay we're, we're gonna lift the state restrictions or a lot of them uh but uh you know the county executives are free to do what they want okay they're free to do what they want now obviously they weren't free to go less fascist than the state level, but they were free to go more fascist. And indeed, he knew that all of the big areas, Baltimore, Washington, and everything in between, those areas were going to just go fascist. And, you know, my county executive, who is literally just a white trash man-child, extreme leftist, it's the first time we've ever had a county executive that is as liberal as the Baltimore city mayor... Uh, He just uh, went more fascist than even the state did during the peak of this, much less now with 80% of all deaths happening in nursing homes. We now know, by the way, from Colorado, as we predicted, a good number of them are made up. Colorado was forced to revise their numbers down 25%. Remember, there's nothing unique about Colorado. This is true of every state. They are counting every human being who tests positive for it and then dies of a clear alternate cause as a COVID death. Now, what happened here is, so first of all, obviously the governor never had authority to do this. The emergency statute doesn't give you authority to shut down rights. As a federal judge said over the weekend in North Carolina, there is no pandemic exception to the first amendment. Um, We always knew that Uh, it violates the Maryland declaration of rights. But then even if you overlook that, even if you're exercising legitimate emergency authority, as you guys well know, you cannot give over your authority as you know one political figure to another. Uh, government doesn't work that way. It's not like in private life. Well, if you're a CEO of a company, well, you could deputize someone else to make a decision. That, that, that's your prerogative. Whereas here, if you're a president, if you're a governor, you don't own the state. You don't own the people. The, you know, the, the, those are God-given rights. You are elected to be the steward, the executive of the government. So if you want, you could shut down the government, but you can't shut people down. And you certainly can't give over power to other people to do that. Right? A president can't um, give over to Congress executive powers and vice versa. You know, let me give you an example. We say all the time the president has uh, inherent and delegated authority to close the border, to prevent people from coming into the country if he doesn't want them to come in. But the president can't give that authority over to Montana, let's say, to not allow you know people to cross from Canada. You know, just because you have that authority, you, you can't give that over to other people, to other branches of government. And it's a similar thing here. County officials don't have that. Yet here we're sitting here utterly raped in this county where a man who sh- himself should be arrested is now shutting people down. And I went to the barber for the first time in ages to get a haircut. 
because I thought they were open. And he had tears in his eyes. First off, he was only letting in one person at a time into the shop. So you had to wait outside. There was only one other person. Got in there. He was really distraught. It's um, He's like 70 years old. It's him and his son. His son wasn't there. Um, you can imagine. It's not a big salon. It's a men's haircuttery with him and his son. They have to pay rent. I, I once did the math. I mean, this is not a guy that's going to be pulling down more than 50000 60000 a year. And he doesn't want a handout. He doesn't want a welfare check. He just wants to have his business open one person at a time. He was. He told me he was willing to even set up a tent and, and just do everything, to whatever you want, just, just let me open. So the governor let him open, but then now the county evidently is going to you know shut people down. So he's like, I'm just going to do this until the police come or now they've deputized even other health care officials or health department officials, which is illegal as well. What, is the sanitation uh, department going to come and shut him down? So anyway, I mean, he talked about how he could not get any of the PPP loans. He could not get the money. And I'm seeing that from a lot of people that are self-owned businesses without, you know, 100, 200 employees. They really can't get access to it. They can't get on unemployment because they're self-employed. I thought they were, I thought the bill allowed for it, but I'm, you know, the reality on the ground is I'm not seeing that. So he... So just first off, just imagine we're we're in a situation here where we bankrupted ourselves with trillions of dollars and we didn't even solve the problem for the people that got shut down. And I was just, it just made me so mad. At the end, I gave him 40 bucks and he, he didn't want to take it. But I said, look, if not for government, I would have been in here two other times and I didn't come in. So, you know, you would have gotten the money anyway. He reluctantly took it. And I just I just felt terrible for a guy like that. This is the American story. And as we head into Memorial Day and July 4th, remember, this is not the country that our veterans and those that gave the ultimate sacrifice died for. This is not the country they died for. This is wrong. This is illegal. These people need to be arrested. And where the hell is Attorney General Bill Barr? Is he still studying the lawsuits? There's not a single lawsuit. Where's the U.S. attorney from Maryland? So, folks, if you guys, anyone here who is a lawyer, a lawyer for liberty, email me, dharwitz at blazemedia.com or organize at our Facebook page, Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary. You could uh, subscribe to our private page and we'll invite you. Minutemen speak easy, as in tavern. So we could organize and, and put together lawsuits. That's our only choice. But we need information. We need information to get the truth out so enough people rebel. It's slowly happening. But it's scary. It's scary that America is behind Europe, France, even Italy is opening. And most of our states aren't. So it's funny. We weren't as bad as New York, New Jersey, some others. But at this point, my part of Maryland is almost like the worst in the country now. They went backwards. It's like, what are we allowed to do today? Who says you have that authority? You don't have that authority. We need to make this clear. So anyway, folks, I mentioned before that we were going to have a very special guest on today. A lot of the public policy decisions, or really all of them, are predicated on certain facts or perceived facts. What is the virus? What does it do? Who does it attack? How long has it been here? When did it start? Basic questions that I think a lot of us thought two months ago when this was a little bit murky, by now we would have had definitive answers. It's a little bit bizarre that we are not seeing a lot of data from our government. We are seeing certainly a lot of data and information from uh, international studies, foreign governments. But one of the things that we had here domestically that really kicked off a debate and really shed light on the extent of the virus, likely when it began, and also demonstrating that the fatality rate was likely much lower than we thought, was when we started these antibody tests. And obviously, the first high-profile one was in Santa Clara County, which is the home to Stanford University. And Dr. Jay Bhattacharya was behind that serology test, as well as um, the one that was just conducted of Major League Baseball employees is also involved with the one in Los Angeles County. 
And ever since that came out in Santa Clara, it's funny, we have seen one after another where each serology test almost hones in exactly on that median of 0.2% IFR, infection fatality rate, based on the extrapolated data of how many people likely had the virus in that given area, and then you divide the numerator. And then as we've been mentioning, the numerator itself is extremely heterogeneous, extremely lopsided. Um, So really, if you are healthy and you don't have certain uh, risks, and especially if you're under 60, uh, the the IFR is way under 0.2, and we're certainly seeing that corroborated by data from Spain, France, Netherlands. And then, folks, we've seen hard data, completely defined and confined universes, um, ships, prisons, ICE detention facilities, uh, somewhat less confined but still similar meatpacking plants, where, again, we're seeing the same theme, lots of infections, most of them asymptomatic, which has turned out to be a real surprise, I think, for a lot of us, and a relatively small number of deaths out of them. And again, usually they're almost to a person, part of that known vulnerable population. So with us today is Dr. Bhattacharya himself, MD, PhD at Stanford Medical School. Um, He's also a senior fellow at Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, director of the Center on Demography and Economics of Health and Aging. So you got their medical science, demography, economics, really the full picture that we need to put together the proper public policy prescription. Dr. Bhattacharya, thanks so much for joining us today and taking time out of your busy schedule. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, I know you're in high demand, obviously kicking off this debate. And I do want to get into the specifics um, of the just the science behind this for laymen before we get into the policy implications about the virus uh, broadly. Could you just explain what what happens when you take this blood test what are you seeing and what does it mean that someone has the antibodies and they're immune? And in your answer, if you could just explain IgM, IgG, and any other um, proteins or or part components of that blood sample that you're looking for. Uh, sure. So uh, an antibody test is, uh, is, a, is a blood test uh, that checks to see if you've produced antibodies that are specific to the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. COVID um, so that the, uh, you know, whenever you're challenged with a virus, or typically when people are challenged with any virus, your body will start to produce antibodies that, that, that attack it. Um, the, ch- the, the challenge here is finding an antibody that is only produced by this virus and not produced by other similar viruses or other, 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 other things so that we can measure it and see if, if it's, uh, uh, you know, you, you have evidence of being, been, being you know, infected before. The thing about antibodies, they start to get produced, it turns out for this virus, somewhere between, uh, say, six to 10 days after you've been infected. Typically, uh, and this is also true in this virus, the, the antibodies that are produced early in the course of infection are these antibody, antibodies called IgM, which is a particular you know, structure. Uh, later in the course of the disease, and although in this case it turns out not too much later, you start to produce a second kind of antibody called IgG. Uh, those last long after the virus is gone. Um, so and and you know continue you know so continue to be there so that we can check for, for their presence and say okay yeah you were infected sometime in the past you, now when we when we measure you you can't tell exactly how long before you were infected you just all it tells you is uh, were you infected in the past uh, because we have a, a, a test that's specific uh, the question of of uh, now this is this is really really useful because it helps us understand how far when widespread the disease is and uh, if you know the number of deaths in in, the, in a particular population, you can get a measure of the death rate, just exactly as you said in your introduction, uh, you know, sort of what's the probability of, of dying if conditional on having, having been infected. Uh, so, I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the confusion around this death rate number has to do with the denominator, the number of people that have been infected. A lot of the tests have, are these PCR-based tests. PCR is polymerase chain reaction. It's a kind of test that checks whether you're actively infected with the virus, and it's supposed to turn negative after the virus is gone. Um, whereas the antibody test will be positive even after the virus is gone. So if you want a full picture of how people are infected, you need to do an antibody, uh, antibody it's called serology test, uh, serology study. Now, there's two kinds of, uh, these kinds of tests, broadly speaking. There, there are these 
these this the technology called ELISA. It's extremely accurate. It's done. It's done in a lab. You you but you need a blood sample usually from from your veins, your venous blood, and you take the blood to the lab, and then they run run this test, and it's it has very low errors. It's 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 excellent for clinical uh, diagnosis. Uh, the the reason why people use it is that for that reason. So there's two kinds of errors, as you, as you all um, almost certainly know, that in, in any kind of medical test, there's false positives and false negatives. The false positive is you truly don't have the antibody, but it, the test shows up positive, or you tr- or it's false negative. You truly, you know, uh, you, you truly don't have the an, uh, antibody, but I'm sorry, sorry, you truly do have the antibody, but shows up it, it uh, shows up negative, right? So false positive. And now uh, the ELISAs are very very good on both. But now there, there's variation. Some labs are better than others, but that's 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 another thing. The, the problem for the ELISAs for big studies like ours is that you have to draw venous blood, which is very difficult in any setting, but because, you, you know, people don't want to have to sit and have someone, you know, stick a, stick a needle into their vein. And, but it's really difficult in a setting where you have lockdowns everywhere uh, to draw large samples of people like that. Uh, so the alternative technology is a technology, uh, it, it basically looks like a pregnancy test. It's, it's a little, it's a little tiny plastic thing. It, it, it has a uh, you put a little drop of blood, a finger prick stick of blood into it, and it and it measures the IgG and the, whether there's IgG or IgM present. It's uh, incredibly specific in the sense that it, if you're if you're truly neg- negative, it won't show positive very very frequently. Like I think uh, the, what the kit we use is point five percent of the time, five times out of a thousand, it'll show positive, false false positive. Uh, but it's less sensitive in the sense that uh, if you're if you're truly positive. About eighty, uh, ten to twenty percent of the time, it'll show you negative. Now that would be a problem if I was doing using it in the clinical setting because I wouldn't be able to say, uh, you know, for for you, for you, you, you get a test result, you're positive. Well, I mean, that's probably you're positive, but I, I'd have to give you the probability. It, it would be it would be a complicated story to tell you because I can't correct directly for you. You you n equals one person. I'd rather have the ELISA to do a clinical test. For uh, for our study, it's not a problem because if I know the rate at which it's false positive and false negative, I can adjust for that statistically. So if I which you, you guys know, did right, people, yeah, we did. So, so when I you guys it. said that at the time, and and this was by the way, um, you know, like a month ago where this was still going on, so likely there are many more people that wound up getting it. But didn't you guys say that really it it, it came out based on your random sampling that if you would extrapolate it like any public opinion poll, which People in my business do all the time and rely on that. Uh, it would be fifty to eighty-five times more pervasive than what the PCR testing showed. Yeah, although we've now have a lot more information about the accuracy of the test. So when you when you when you take that into account, I think the number we're going with is about fifty. But that that lower lower number is the right one. Um, so, but the, still, that's an enormous number. That means that for every person that we have identified with PCR-based testing in San Diego County as of April third and fourth or whatever it was um there there were there are 50 people walking around with uh, with evidence of antibodies in their in their uh, in santa clara with evidence of antibodies meaning they've had infection in the past we're missing a very very large number of people now they're not always symptomatic a lot i mean some of them had symptoms but uh, but not symptoms that were severe enough to lead them to go to the doctor or get tested in pcr right 49 49 50 people that that, that uh, positive that didn't didn't have a pcr test um, and also the other other complications. The PCR tests are, I mean, they're becoming wide, widely available, but they, they for a long time they weren't. Um, so that that undercount is not a is not a mathematical constant. It, it varies from place to place depending on the extent of testing and a whole bunch of other things. But but but, but, but the thing that, is, that, do- doctor, from what you found, and and this is key. So there's a confirmation bias in that people that were very sick, especially initially, they were really sick to warrant it. Sometimes just out of need, they could only get it in those cases, depending on how many tests a given city had. So they're like, all right, well, there's this number of cases, this number of people died. Like, you know, WHO said 3.4% fatality rate. You know, you took New York City or some other places, you could even get an 8-10% fatality rate. But what what we always suspect is that, well, wait a minute, you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. There's likely a whole number of people. So haven't you found from the serology tests you've been involved in that, in fact, a majority of those that test positive were asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic? Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, th- th- there are a lot of people that would never come in for testing, right? And so the only way to detect them is through these, these kind of antibody studies. Actually, let me make a, a related point about this. If you don't know the prevalence of the disease in an area, that is the, the fraction of people that have, been, that, that have evidence of having had antibodies or, or having you know, been, been infected, it's very difficult to interpret the test at all on a clinical level. Because, well, I mean, just, just to take a very, very a cra- crazy example that illustrates the point, like if you... Uh, let's say you have a very, very accurate test, almost 100%, you know, close to 99.9% accurate in terms of sensitivity and specificity, like a pregnancy test. If you run a pregnancy test on, on, uh, on a population of just males and you see a positive, because the prevalence of pregnancies is so low among males, that is almost certainly a false positive, even with a very accurate test. You need to know the prevalence to understand the clinical meaning of a test well, as well. So these prevalence studies help clinically as well as uh, as well as uh, you know in this sort of epidemiologic settings. No, I mean that that and that's that's what's very important here because what I felt when I saw your study is that a lot of people were poking holes in it, and so in politics we have this all the time with political opinion polls, which work upon the same principle of extrapolation with a random sampling, and what will often happen is we'll have let's say a candidate we like, candidate we don't like. And a poll will come out that doesn't look good for us. And we'll be like, well, you know, you don't have enough landlines or this. And you. Know, and it's not that we're wrong, that theoretically these holes are true, but sometimes the poll is just right. And what happens is you start seeing groupings where you have multiple polls that really hone in on the same outcome. So how do you feel that after you guys were kind of the first, it seems like all over the place we're seeing the same story um, different companies doing it, different uh, cities doing it. And then also, like I said, if if serology tests are akin to political polling, then prisons and ships are like the election, like the ballot results. I mean, that's not extrapolation. So you have an isolated population. Um, we have seen this everywhere, really the same story where, you know, for example, we had a, a, a prison in Tennessee I wrote about Every single person was tested. The positive rate was massive. It was like 60% of the entire prison had it, which, of course, in close confinement, they're going to have it at a higher rate. Um, But everyone said the same story. The overwhelming majority were asymptomatic and nobody died. And I was writing the article, and then right when I published it, one person died. And, of course, he was much older than the rest of the prison population which is younger and he had pre-existing conditions i mean almost to a person so aren't we seeing the same um the same pattern everywhere where it's almost like we're mainly seeing in the clinical setting the tip of the iceberg that are sicker but if you extrapolate for the fact that the the this is so much more pervasive in the population and and especially from the data i'm seeing from europe now it and i've seen um individual nursing homes in America as well, even among seniors, it might be less so, but even among seniors, often a majority in a given area are asymptomatic. There are a lot of, there's a lot of uh, studies that have come out since. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, it's, this is a scientific study, of course, so it, it legitimately subject to, you know, peer criticism. And actually the paper got, the version two of the paper is substantially stronger as a result of that peer criticism. I don't, I don't have any complaints about my fellow scientists uh, sort of, trying to sharpen my head that's that's i think that's fine um the, but i completely agree with you about this with the studies that have come out since I mean, we're seeing some a very very similar picture almost and i should be very careful about this almost everywhere in the world whether you get uh, a large number of people that are undetected by the pcr tests um but actually at the same time it should be we should be careful like it's most places it's the prevalence is somewhere on the order, certainly less than 10%, often less than 5%, just like we found in Santa Clara. It's it just the epidemic just isn't very far along in some sense in most of the world. There are some exceptions. So New York City is a good, a good example of this. The serologist has there find 25, 20 to 25% infection uh, of, of, of prevalence. And, and uh, the implied death rate, the infection fatality rate there is something on the order of five in a thousand rather than one to two in a thousand, like we found in Santa Clara. Um, and I think, uh, like, I think Spain and France have been finding similar, uh, finding even higher infection fatality rates there. This points to a very important fact. Infection fatality rate is not a constant, it's not a universal constant that's, 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 uh, that's generated just by the biology of the virus. 
it's a combination of factors. It's, it's the, the host that's infected. So just like you said, older people that get the virus, it's much more deadly in older people. Um, absolutely. But also the, the circumstances of treatment. So the, the sort of the health, health policy environment that if, you, if you're, if you're in it, it seems like if you're in an environment where there's, you know, like in a nursing home where people are just not set up to, to treat you, or, or if you're, if you're getting this in a, in a, in a hospital, that's, that's, that, uh, you know, where, where there's lots of like high viral load around, uh, you know, like the, we, we we're pretty sure happened in, in, uh, in Italy and in, in Wuhan, um, uh, where, where it was passed within the hospital set, mm-hmm. settings there, you could have much worse death rates easily, I think. Um, so it's, it's a combination of multiple things. It's not a, it's not a universal feature of the virus. It's a, it's, a, it's host, uh, it's virus host and, uh, and, and sort of treatment setting. It's so heterogeneous. Like it's like I remember right after I published my article on the Nether- the Netherlands um, serology test, which really showed that among most cohorts, the uh, IFR was way below 0.1 or 0.2. It was an entire decimal or two decimals over, which people pan that as absurd. But I said, well, wait a minute. If you think about it, if on the upper bounds people above 80 which account in many of these countries for well over 50 percent of the deaths so that's where the whole thing is weighted um if that you're going to talk about five to ten percent ifr in some some places which it could be you know 50 to 100 times more than your median so then that means you have to have a lot of cohorts that are well over 50 to 100 times lower than that just just to get that top line number i mean i'm, I'm not a scientist but i know it was simple arithmetic and what happened was they were like, well, Daniel, focus on Spain because Spain did have a higher top line. I think it was closer, more like 1%. But even there, it was just because the data went gangbusters on males over 80. But but if you look at the... I think that, that points yeah. to, a, a, we're going to talk about policy later, right? But that points to a policy thing, right? So where should our focus be? It should be to protect those people, right? We're, since, since we're learning about where, who's, who's most vulnerable to disease, uh, you know, let's 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 figure out a way to uh, improve our clinical treatment of those people, improve our, our, our ability to isolate those people. I think that that population is incredibly vulnerable to this. I mean, I have an 80 year old mom. I don't want her to get this. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's 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 really that's a, that's that is an important feature of something we've learned from the, the serology studies that we didn't previously know. This disease has a very wide range of clinical presentations, from completely symptomatic, relatively mild, to this deadly viral pneumonia. And if you're if you're older, you're much more more uh, likely to get that viral pneumonia, that you know the deadly viral pneumonia that kills you, than if you're if you're younger. So, so th- this is what bothers me because you did this, and I want to know why others aren't doing this. So he- here's what I don't understand. Why did I have to go to the Netherlands to get a nice, good, clean chart? So now that we know this is heterogeneous, the, the the top line IFR, in my view, is meaningless. At first, we wanted to prove that just to show it wasn't 10% or something. So you want to show it's much lower. But but again, to me, it, it really, you have to stratify it because it is so, so lopsided. You look at Spain, and we're getting close to that. But in Spain, 57% of the entire nation's deaths aren't just over 80, That's it's more than 57%. 57% are in a nursing home, a senior care facility. So that means if you just take that out of the numerator and you want to know what the fraction is for the non-nursing uh, home population, that in itself cuts it in half before you even get to the pre-existing conditions and the age groups and things like that. So my question to you is, how is it that this far into this crisis... CDC hasn't conducted with their much more robust resources than you had a national sample, whether it's 50,000 and whatever the smart people would know how to do this, get in the right geography, get in the right demographics. Why don't we have such a table? I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's, it's like, and a nationwide, I'd love to be able to do nationwide. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for the CDC scientists. It's they're, they're operating under a lot of stress. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I mean, I think uh, it's it would be it would be challenging under any circumstances to conduct a nationwide study like this. Uh, and under these circumstances, in this political environment, it's and you know, especially it's just it's just a very very challenging thing. I mean, I I, I assume they're working hard on this uh, on, on on things like this. I know I saw the NIH 
had uh, was 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 uh, working on planning on a study a study like this. I, I think um, I mean this picture is going to it's still a young virus, you know. It's still you know it's not five months old or you know in the U.S. not 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 four months old. So um, we're we're learning. I mean, it's in a, in, a, in a sense, it's. I mean, I guess I'm a optimistic person. I mean, we, the scientific community has made a lot of advances in this in a very short time, and I'm still I'm still learning myself. Uh, you know. Every day I read, I read the, uh, the, the uh, I open up Med Archive looking for something to learn. So it's, it, there's still quite a bit to know about this virus. Sure. On, on the micro level, I mean, there's so much about the transmission and the viral load. But in terms of the, the top lines, it's funny how it's kind of coming full circle and we seem to just get the hard data of what we all really knew. I mean, this was put out in January and February that it's, it's you know, Older people, people with heart conditions, diabetes, we kind of knew that. We knew the nursing homes. It started, this whole thing started in Kirkland, um, you know, at least with the deaths in, in uh, outside of Seattle. And it's kind of like we've come full circle and the heart, it's just that we have a bunch of hard data. And, and I think the asymptomatic really did surprise me. So didn't you um, find in the MLB uh, staff? 40, 45%. That's, it's, yeah, it's 40, it, it, it's among the positives in the MLB is 45% were completely asymptomatic. Okay, so could you explain what that means? Could, could you explain what that they, they is? Is that no, you interview them? No, uh, uh, yeah, well, we sent we did a survey. So everyone that participated in the study, which is about uh, 5,600 people that both got the survey, did the survey and did the finger prick, um, the, uh, the, the, um, uh, we, we divided them up into the ones who tested positive and ones who tested negative. We asked everybody, including the negatives and positives, uh, whether they had in the last two weeks fever, cough, cold, uh, cough, uh, sore throat, a whole bunch of like symptoms, and uh, you know that 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 go with the virus, um, and uh, including some specific ones like loss of sense of taste or smell, and and uh, it turns out that forty five percent of the of the people who tested positive had no none zero. Uh, so it's it's uh, I mean there's there's no question I, I don't know exactly I've seen these numbers vary from place to place a lot right some places are reporting much higher asymptomatic other places are playing a little lower um but it's it's uh, it's very clear there's a large fraction of people who experience very few symptoms at all uh you know it's open question though it's like how to what extent do they produce antibodies that are protective and how long do those last um if you're asymptomatic versus if you have a severe presentation i mean that seems like if you have a more severe presentation you get more antibodies but does but could you could you you know, do you get antibodies if you're asymptomatic? That's still, I think, an interesting question. So are you that's seeing really that in the survey? Stuff. So in other words, like what, what we, what us laymen here in the news is like kind of an on or off button. They either got in the study or they, or, or it came back negative. But when you research this in a lab, are you seeing different levels? So the, you know, the test kit we used can't tell levels. The test kit we use is just yes on or on or off the little, uh, the little kit that with the finger pick. If you want levels, you have to do that more accurate ELISA test I was mentioning earlier. So I don't have any of those numbers because I, I don't. We, we can't we can't draw venous blood in this population. So I know people that are trying to do this and 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 get you know tested on an individual level. Let's talk about an individual risk based on the ELISA testing, where you know now that you tested positive, whether you remember being sick or you don't remember being sick. Um, what does that mean for you as an individual? You know, like, I don't know if you have 10, 20, 30 people that all have it and say, Hey, you know, let's get together and stay, you know, stay in our office together or let's, uh, hold a church service together. Cause we all have the antibodies, you know, you're, you're telling me that those tests seem to be very, the, the lab ones seem to be very accurate. So could they rely on that? Yeah, but we don't, we don't know the prevalence yet. I mean, in most places, so you can't tell. Uh, so there's a there's a concept called positive predictive value. So if you test positive, what's the probability you are actually positive? Positive predictive value. To know that number, you have to know the prevalence. So even if, as I was saying before, even if you have an accurate test, it could still be wrong if it's a low prevalence. An accurate test and you test positive, still be wrong if it's low, if it's low prevalence. So th- there's that aspect of it. The other thing is, I mean, you know, mo- almost every in almost every case, the antibodies provide some protection, but we don't know yet how much protection. Is it complete? How long-lasting is it? This, that's still that's still an active area of debate uh, among scientists. That's something. I've, that's one of the reasons I've been trawling Med Archive and, and other other scientific publications. I, I want to know. I want to know the answer to that question. And there's still a very active debate over that question right now. 
I mean, it would very surprise me if it, if it didn't turn out there was some protection. There just almost has to be. But the question is, like, what is it going to be? The details of it, who, 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 like, what kind of infection produces the more complete protection, all of that is, it still needs, needs to be determined. So is there, and this connected to what you're saying, have you looked into the theory at all about cross immunity from other coronaviruses? Does such a thing exist? If you had other coronaviruses, that maybe you could be immune to this. I've seen that hypothesis. I don't. I haven't seen anything definitive one way or the other on that as yet. Um, but there's there's been a lot of interest in that. So I think uh, we're going to learn. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and that and that's for the individual. And like you said, um, the epidemiology surveys. Actually, I would have epidemiologic consequences too if there was. Again, I don't know if there is or not. But if there was, that means that there may be a substantial fraction of the population that are not at risk of getting it. Because it's funny, I was about to head there because, and and this, I'm just really just speaking from the belly here. I mean, I I don't have any data, but I just, from watching this so close, and I've followed this since January, not March, um, it, it almost does seem like it burns through a population very viciously, but then like it, hits a brick wall tops out which yeah it's like i've not seen prevalence higher than let's say 30 i mean it could be maybe and, and the other side is using that anywhere. to say hey well this is why we need lockdowns because you know this this many people died just from you know five to ten percent you can imagine if you burn through to get to 70 percent we'll all be dead by then but I, i'm really but, starting i mean that's another that's yeah. another issue so the issue is like what is the the the, the threshold of, of uh, the, i mean if assuming we we have immunity but what is the threshold of herd immunity right so herd immunity the way it works is um Every person, let's say 70% of the population, I don't know what the herd immunity number is, but let's say it's, let's say it's 70. Uh, it's, it might be lower, it might be lower, or it might be higher, but I, so let's, I, let's pick a number. Um, that says that if, if a random person runs to another random person in that population, um, on average, someone is positive with the, with the, with the virus in them, um, will transmit it to, to exactly one or fewer than one people. And so that means the disease will just sort of like be steady, it won't take off exponentially, it'll sort of hang around at, in, at low levels. Um, and, you know, it, it, you know, sort of very few people will have it uh, in the long run. Uh, a, a, a situation where what, what, what that is, is, uh, you know, the, the question is how high a, a fraction of the population are, if you have a fraction of the population that, that sort of has this cross immunity you talked about, when they get, I have no idea if they do or not, but if they did, well, that herd immunity threshold will be lower. Because they, they they constitute a fraction of a set of people who, if you randomly ran into them, would never pass the virus to you, because they never had it. Um, so I think that's the kind of kind of a sort of uncertainty we still have. Uh, it, I mean, I, I I've been interpreting the low prevalence numbers in places like Santa Clara and L.A. and the MLB study as evidence that we're sort of we're sort of still early along. I mean, we're we're and I I've been interpreting that as evidence that um, you know we're we're likely to see this come back. Right, it's not gone. Uh, maybe, maybe, but in even New York, 25, like if it's 70, 25 is really low. Uh, lockdowns, that's a different question, whether that would be effective. Like lockdowns delay the onset of, of the, the, the epidemic. It doesn't actually eliminate the epidemic. I think people are confused by that. I mean, it almost seems like they think, I, I, I think they, they kind of got all into this. And obviously there was a very good... Um, a very good rationale, but as some Israeli researchers from Hebrew University, I think, put it very well, that really the only utility to it seems to be if you're the type of country that can't handle the number of ICU beds, which they estimated that Israel would have been able to handle, and I guess that would mean that we would have been able to handle it. But beyond that, it's not like you're eradicating. It's not like it floats around. Well, let me well let me form that as a question. Is there some sort of a theory that perhaps, for whatever reason, without a vaccine and without herd immunity, it just kind of, I don't know, dissipates after two months? You know what happened it's, with SARS is is kind of. I mean, SARS was. It looked. It actually had a higher IFR, I think, than this. Oh yeah. Um, and it looked like, for all the world, like it was going to be a, a absolutely deadly, a deadly pandemic worldwide, and it just kind of disappeared. It, I mean, we don't. You know, it's probably it, maybe it's still floating around. I don't know. If, I mean, I mean, like track that literature closely, but it 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 didn't. Um, I don't know why. No one actually. I don't think anyone anyone knows fully the the, the reason why it just sort of went away. I, I don't. 
uh, it, it, it's you know like uh, the, 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 there's like a science fiction novel where the Martians invade and everyone's either going like, kill, to kill the world, but then it rains on them and the rain gets them, you know, kill, kills them because they're not used to water. I mean, I, I just don't, I don't see that kind of you know sort of war the world ending to this. Um, I, I, I mean, I hope that there is, but I, I mean, I don't know. I don't. There's no, there's no evidence on that as yet. I mean, so the implication of what you're saying, and again, the people that are very supportive of lockdowns are openly saying this as well, that there's going to be a second wave, a third wave. They, they all say that. So what I don't understand is how to add the two positions together, meaning if you think lockdown is the way to go, so... Well, you're going to have it worse next, right? So if you, you, know, you lock down, you bankrupt our hospitals, uh, and then when the, when the second wave comes, uh, we don't have any, we have fewer hospitals that are viable to, to deal with it. And I think that there's a trade-off in, in policy, right? So the question is, like, what's the, what's the cost and the benefits is always the economic question, right? So here, the benefits of the lockdown are to slow the spread of infection and, and to flatten the curve. In most of the country, I think we accomplished that because, I mean, you know, the hospitals basically were, were em- or, I mean, not empty, but like, you know, so they, they weren't treating, you know, people delayed all kinds of very, very essential, essential treatments as it was, as, in order to keep the beds open for coronavirus patients. Um, but uh, uh, at, at a cost, like, you know, so both, both in health and lives, but also the hospitals themselves. When the, uh, when the next wave hits, and I anticipate will, will our hospital systems be more or less ready? Uh, I mean, the economic harm from from uh, from the depression that we, that that's been that that is uh, we're sort of already in the midst of, it's likely to, that we're going to be less ready. The poorer world will be less capable of dealing with this epidemic than than a richer world would have been. I've never seen such a counterintuitive policy in my life with the shutdown of so much medical care where they get a lot of their revenue from. We saw the Mayo Clinic furloughing forty percent of its employees, um, the hospitals losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, I mean, it, it's very hard to see how to do that. And the other question I had to you connected with coming back around post-lockdown is this. And and again, this is just a question. I don't know. And I wanted to see if you have a scientific answer. I, I remember the movie Bubble Boy. You know, how what, what oh, happens yeah. if you have someone his entire life, he's in a bubble. Yeah, that puts you at a certain now, age. I remember that too. <laughs> You know, and um, I, well, I was very young, but but I I, I just I, I don't know. I, I to to me, I don't think we've ever done this before. You know, as an entire you know country, the, the 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 entire world really, or most of the world, where you take people, including people with healthy immune systems, and you lock them down, let's say for two months. What happens when you let them out? Did, is there now a concern that? There will be some sort of a counterintuitive outcome where they'll be more susceptible to other viruses or bacteria that maybe wouldn't have been a problem before. I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. I I, I don't know. I mean, there's like this uh, uh, interesting theory uh, around why why the asthma rates are higher. That sort of where we we keep our kids cleaner and away from dirt and that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's true or false, but I mean, it could be. What I do know is that the lockdown has had a lot of negative effects on health. Uh, I mean, the last great, uh, the last recession, the great recession, we saw this big increase in deaths of despair. I mean, I anticipate that. To, I mean, I think there's already evidence of that. Worldwide, we're seeing, I think, uh, you know, resurgence, we're going to see a resurgence in tuberculosis, uh, decreases in, in, um, in, in vaccinations. I mean, the UN is actually, uh, the World Health Organization is actually suggesting uh, basically terminating or, or, or reducing the the, uh, the application of these these mass mass vaccination programs we're going to see the re, the resurgence of, of a lot of diseases polio a lot of diseases that we thought we thought we had sort of had licked um, around the world as a result of the lot the, the lockdowns uh, did, did you have five more minutes just to go go over some scientific questions or are you out of time uh, I, sure uh, sure uh, absolutely okay yeah just want to make sure I didn't want to keep you because we, we've already gone over time here but um just real quick I had a doctor on the show a couple of weeks ago that I thought had a fascinating theory, and I wanted to run this by you, that it's almost like an inverse relationship between contagion and fatality rate in the sense that typically something that is really deadly, like Ebola or something like that, and we saw that with SARS and MERS. MERS was like, some, they say, a 35% kill rate or something, but it really affected very few people, whereas the closer you get to something like a respiratory infection, like a flu, it's very ubiquitous, but almost working in tandem with that is that the fatality rate is low because 
the virus tends to want to replicate itself in a way that it will survive longer in more people. Is there validity to that? I mean, I've seen sort of evolutionary theories where they, it's kind of like if there was a virus that came around that was ubiquitous and deadly, then we wouldn't be here. So that, that, that can't exist. I mean, I guess you can reason like that. I mean, I, I'm a little, I have to say, I, I'm much more attracted to let's, let's measure the, the, the fatality rate of a virus and let's measure its prevalence and see, as opposed to reasoning from those kind of, those kind of first principles. Because, you know, I, I, I kind of want the data to, help, to, to guide yeah, it. I mean, the, the, like theory. The, the reason why I say that is just because that is the way the the politicians and the media, that is the way they are acting. And and I was just thinking, has there ever been... That is one piece of, that's really important point. The the, 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 the data that we've seen from the seroprovin studies leaves you with one of, you could, you, I mean, let's say you, you want the lower ed, uh, edge of our confidence bands, right? Um, and you, you say, look, it's not that prevalent and it's a really deadly disease because it's not that prevalent, the denominator is lower, the, the infection fatality rate is higher. So you have either two choices. Either it's a not very infectious disease that kills at very high rates, or it's a really, really infectious disease that kills at relatively low, you know, it's still too high for my taste, like well, one, you know, two, one, two, a thousand. But, but, but they but, say but the opposite. Low rates, right? So it's one or the other. You can't, you can't, it doesn't leave you with the option of it's a deadly virus, it's completely widespread. The, the, and and that's that's the point because and, and I don't know if it's God's mercy on us that like you say he, he doesn't create something like that. Um, I mean I don't know what was going on with the Spanish flu that seemed almost a little bit like that. But then again, that was before you know our sanitation standards. The I mean modern medicine and everything. Um, but well, they're they're really referencing the Spanish flu a lot. And 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 I, I don't think I'm putting words in their mouth. I think if you would justify their actions. I always say, and correct me, what, what what that disease is called, where you have to amputate all four limbs, horrible disease. Um, it, 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 someone in my community actually had it. And it, it's just a real terrible disease where they have to amputate all four. I'm not sure I'm familiar with it. Well, I'm sure it'll come to us. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I can't, I can't remember what it is, but I, the analogy I gave is if you come to a doctor and the doctor's like, all right, here's what you have. I'm going to amputate all four limbs. And you'd be like, all right, hey, let's just do it. I mean, you would literally overturn every rock to make sure that is not the truth or that is indeed the truth. And that's kind of what I'm seeing. If you look at what we've done to ourselves and what a lot of them want to continue really doing uh, pretty long term, I mean, you better be sure you're right about that. And, and, and what I'm starting to see is the only way to justify that would be is if you have something like, you know, an Ebola, MERS, kill rate that's as transmissible as as the flu and i mean like i said yeah, you, I mean, you if, go if down really the is a 34 out of 100 death rate um that the, you know we could say that the, that the world health organization's number of 3400 is right and it is incredibly transmissible i think it would justify an extraordinary public policy response Absolutely. Um, and uh, the, the, the question is, what's the right policy response? I mean, I think um, I, I, I'm, I want to be a little careful because you know, like, there could be places where if you open up the lockdown and you run a projection with the correct numbers, you're going to overwhelm hospital systems. And as we talked about earlier, that will kill people. Right. So let's run the numbers and make those decisions based on, on the, the data that we're seeing. Um, uh, but I think for most places, it'll, it'll, uh, it's, you know, I, 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 I haven't run all the numbers, but it would be surprised me if the, if, if lifting, lifting carefully at least would, would, uh, would, would overwhelm the system. I mean, we're seeing the death rates come down even in New York. Um, it, as, it seems like the infection has burned itself. The epidemic sort of has burned itself through. I mean, I, I don't know where it is going to be if we, you know, when, when, the, when the list up comes. But actually, the other, other aspect of it's interesting. There's evidence that people were, you know, social distancing before the lockdowns happened. Right. So just based on the uncertainty and fear about the virus. And we're seeing now evidence that even before the lockdowns are lifted, people are, are sort of are, are, are sort of they're no longer so scared. And they're sort of going out. Um, I mean, I see just anecdotally when I when I, when I uh, sort of bike around here, uh, there's a lot more people now than there were, were, were up and up and around in March. Um, so I think uh, I think that there's like people sort of vote with their feet in this. It's like the, the, uh, the, the compliance with the policy relate to their perception of the disease of the, the, the danger from the disease as opposed to the, the direct the policy the directly the policy itself so i think i mean i think there's there's a lot of this it's it's complicated right policy is difficult 
Sure, sure. No, I mean, it, it is amalgamation of many, many factors, and that's the thing. It can't be done in a vacuum. It can't be done myopically. Final thing, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up, is timing. I, I know, obviously, antibody tests can't determine when the person had antibodies enter their body, you know, when they uh, contracted the virus. But I thought it was fascinating that the first serology test done is in Santa Clara County. And right around the same time, it came out that we now find the earliest known, and it keeps getting earlier the more we study this, the earliest known COVID death in the U.S. was reported in your county in Santa Clara, February 6th. Do you think this thing was percolating in December, late December, early January. I, I don't know late December, but certainly, I mean, that just takes up every six to practically weeks because that's the median time for infection to death and say, and, and that means it's earlier than the January 21st or 22nd day, it's the official start here of the, of the epidemic. I mean, it, it's it's almost certainly was here earlier, earlier than that start than that start date. And I've seen some, oh, there, were, there was a county somewhere where they, they, were, they, were, they were, they tested the serum of somebody uh, who had a COVID-like infection in in I think it was early January, and found and found it was positive to their surprise. So I think I think that's so that is uh, it. It seems likely it was here earlier than than um, than the start the official start date. Whether it's December or, or I mean it's, that's hard to say. You know, because this is what I can't figure out is that on the one hand, like we only saw the explosion of of problems sometime in the beginning of March. But what I couldn't understand is everyone is saying this thing is, I mean, it could run, skip, hop, jump. I mean, this thing will get you. It is so contagious. But then on the other hand, we know it was in Wuhan at a minimum November 17th. We know we had 450,000 people coming from direct flights from November 17th through end of January, I believe. But then even then we had some in February. It wasn't a complete shutoff. We have a heck of a lot of travel. We have more travel than any European country. Um, you know, for better, for worse, the two countries are connected at the hip not just the immigration and the um you know the, all the students that chinese students that come during december january but just the businessmen from both sides going back and forth i never understood how this wouldn't have come in earlier um I mean, in some seems, capacity it, seems, uh, it does seem likely although i think uh like the new york night this was probably europe but i completely agree like maybe maybe the uh uh, the West Coast and the other places. I mean, it's hard to say. I, I'm, you know, the only way to really tell is like a, a study like they did the, 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 this company Deco Genetics did in Iceland, where they sequenced a very large fraction of the virus, of actual viruses, figured out the mutation patterns of each virus, and then from the mutation patterns, figured out who who gave the virus to who, and uh, so they they figured they found out that um, a lot of the virus came from uh, Icelanders going on vacation to. Austria and the UK and coming back with the virus. Um, so, I mean, I think something like that might be might some, some study like that, but I don't think I've never, I haven't seen anything like that systematic in the U S sure. Sure. I mean, and that's the whole question where New York came from. Cause a lot of people, I think another thing that's fearing people is that that's giving people fear is that if you took the New York experience out of the equation, I mean, this is clear. You go to CDC's data and you look at the excess deaths. So you could kind of get a, full picture perspective of several years period, you will actually, depending on the state, either see a slightly higher, the same or slightly lower bump than the 2018 flu season. But you go to New York and its surrounding environs and it goes gangbusters on you. I mean, that's where, you know, 54% of the deaths are, I believe, in the 44 no, counties. Some, it's, with it. it's, it's clear that something, something really terrible happened in New York. Do you have a theory? <laughs> I don't have a, I mean, I think part of it is the nursing homes. I mean, I, you mentioned that earlier, uh, but other places made mistakes with nursing homes, maybe just not on the scale of New York. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's my, that's the first line theory. Viral load? But, is there any yeah, viral I mean, load I, well, theory? Like that, but I, I mean, the viral load theory, I mean, um, that's my primary theory for, for like um, Italy, Italy and, and uh, Wuhan is uh, is that high viral load nosocomial infection nosocomial means like virus spread through through hospital settings um infections uh, so i think that that's certainly play a role but i don't i mean i don't have anything definitive to add to that so well, well can, can you just briefly and, and this really is the last thing what does that what does that mean i mean can you just explain to the average person if if the same human gets pinged by like multiple people with the virus it, it's more virulent what would that mean yeah, I mean, I think you could be overwhelmed with like if you have a little bit of a virus and you're exposed to it, your 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 body has systems even in the absence of antibodies to sort of contain it and and and, and hold it off. If you're 
if you're exposed to a very large bolus of the virus all at once, a huge amount of it, it can overwhelm those kind of sort of uh, 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 natural defenses, if you will, uh, to, to, to the virus. So, and, and then it's the sort of the virus that establishes itself and, and the, sort of off it goes. So I think that, that is, that I think is likely to end up being a big part of the story about in some of these places, sort of a, a high virus. And there's a paper by Jeff Harris at MIT who, who argues that there was a huge amount of viral load in the subways in New York city. Yes. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think, I think that will, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how big a, you know, how much of the story it'll explain, but I think that's likely to play a big role in the story at the end of the day. Now I'll, I'll end off throwing you a curveball here. The problem with that is it seems so logical because it seems like I know the transit workers seem to have died at a much higher rate than NYPD and NYFD. Um, there's some data on that. You seem to find that with healthcare workers and, and then just New York City at large seems to be a good example of that. But here's the big problem I have with that. The best data we have are in prisons. I mean, because it's it's confined, defined, full universes. And this is literally the argument the ACLU had made in their briefs they filed in court. So look, I mean, this is a Petri dish. You get it in there. Um, it's, 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 not, you're right, though. Yeah. You're right, though, about that. I mean, I've seen with the Marion County, Ohio prison uh, where, where it's like. It's like I mean, nobody not, died or very yeah, few died. It is a mystery. I can't figure I, it out. <laughs> I mean, I think part of the story might be. I down on completely. Okay, I shouldn't. I, I'll just tell you my hypothesis. I may as well just because <laughs> uh, I'm not. But this is a hypothesis that's nothing confirmed. Sure. Right? So, uh, so please take it in that spirit. Uh, I mean, it. Uh, uh, the the PCR test is is excellent, but not necessarily perfect, right? So in South Korea, for instance, there was initial reports that that people were finding reinfections after if someone had had the infection. Then later on, they were like finding through the PCR test the virus back again. Um, and but afterwards, they realized it was not actually reinfection. What it was was non-viable viral fragments that were left over after you had the infection that they were picking up. Maybe that's going on. What's going on there? It could be, but it is really mysterious, right? So that, I mean, that's not that's not the full story. That can't be the yep. full story. Like in that population, yeah. we're seeing. And, and again, it's no, not a loaded not question. I'm not trying to trap no, you here. Know, it, 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 it's just I like don't know, I don't feel trapped. Look, I'm trying to. You and I were trying to figure out what's happening, right? So I, we got to look at all the data, not just data that's consist, con, consistent with what we believe with before, what we believe so. in. And, and that's the thing. I mean, yeah. I am not. I mean, I'm obviously a, a hardcore conservative, but I'm also just genuinely intrigued by what this thing that upended our lives more than anything else. And there's just basic things like it, it to me, I would have thought for sure they were right. You get this on a uh, aircraft carrier, you get this in a, in a prison. I mean, you're going to have like a viral load, not just the denominator, you know, the number of people who get it will be more, but the fraction, the, the fatality rate qualitatively, I would have thought for sure would have been more, but you know, again, ice, um, there's 30,000, um, uh, foreign national detainees, in ICE facilities, and they just had their first death, even though they're testing at a 60% positive rate. And guess what? That guy was so sick, he had multiple surgeries, he has a missing leg. Um, you know, that's how bad his case of diabetes and other stuff was. So, you know, now, maybe the theory is it is a young population. It's a very young population. So, yeah, you know, it's different true. than New York at large, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of, as I said, I think it's five months old as virus, right? As far as far as like the, U, the U.S. is concerned, there's still a lot left to learn. I fully expect that a lot of what I think I know about the virus, I'm going to revise over time. And I think, I, I mean, I kind of, you know, I, 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 I don't know how else you can look at it. We just, we still, I think there's a lot we've learned, but there's still a lot left to know. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for, for your generosity. It's a ton of time, a lot of things for people to digest. Please come back when you have more findings, more stuff to share. Um, our audience just eats this up. Uh, thanks so much for what you're doing and keep up the good work. Oh, thank you, Daniel. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Take care. So that was Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, MD, PhD, Stanford Medical School. And um, and again, you know, I, I wanted that to just really be an informative session. If you notice when I have different doctors or scientists or people on the show, I ask them similar questions. You know, what do you think of the viral load? What do you think of New York City? Why is it doing this? And you just get different things. But um, I just want to end off with what we ended off this last segment with. 
And that is, while there is a lot we don't know, as, as um, Dr. J's uh, colleague, Dr. Scott Atlas, always says, while there is a lot we know, don't know, there's a lot we do know that is very remarkably consistent. And that is, we know who this harms, and we know who has a remarkably low risk that is well within the realm of typical risks that we take on in our lifetime of doing a lot of things. So in terms of the clear public policy of lockdown versus, you know, being cautious and going out cautiously, it really doesn't make any sense to do lockdown unless you have political motivations. But, you know, it's tough. A lot of these guys are in a very tough position because, you know, you see epidemiologists that want to come out a little bit, you know, less diplomatically than Dr. J does. They get crushed and they get censored. And this is a very big problem. And you have to wonder why is there such a virulent thing? I mean, you guys that know me for years, have I ever come out and said, this guy, this is horrible what he put out. You know, a video or a column or a study. It needs to be taken off the web. No, we go and debate it and, and debunk it. You know, that's what we do. Why do they have a need to, whenever one of us puts out something, it's got to come off the web. Well, why? If it's so transparently dumb and pathetic and has so many glaring mathematical or scientific mistakes, well, everyone will laugh at it. Or will they? Well, that's the thing. Anyway, again, knowledge, information. We're going to get back to more of the political stuff later on in the week. Sign up for Hurwitz Citizen Sanctuary and our private page of Miniman Speakeasy. Email me anytime, dhorowitz at blazemedia.com, at rmconservative on Twitter. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.